This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Uh, Justin, how are you doing this week as we... Uh, we kick off the political conventions and, and really get into the, the throes of the presidential campaign season. I'm doing well. As you know, we've been really, really busy because we're also to, uh, we also today being uh, Wednesday, we launched the prayer and action justice initiative. Uh, so we'll be fighting with an unprecedented coalition of uh, Christian organizations and le- and leaders against uh, racial injustice and for uh, criminal justice reform. So it's been a busy week, but I have found time to uh, hate on the Lakers. Uh, and so I want to give a <laughs> shout out to my, my man, Dame Leonard, for the uh, the job that he's been doing. And hopefully they can pull that out. <laughs> but it, it's just, been good, man. Just it's been good. unbelievable last night. I mean, <laughs> it was he, – he just threw it down. It was, he's a ball it was player, quite huh? a game. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, we have not only an interesting topic for this week, but the format's a bit different. So uh, let's get into it. We'll let you kind of give an overview of, of the topic we want to cover uh, in this episode. Uh, but we have a very special guest, uh, someone I've known and admired for a, a long time. And uh, that's Kathy Annette Freeman. Ka- uh, Catherine is a leader, writer, and speaker at the intersection of faith, justice, and culture. She's passionate about holistic discipleship, where our private worship leads the church to transform our communities into places of human flourishing for God's glory. Catherine has a degree in English from Texas A&M, a law degree from the University of Texas. Uh, she's currently working on a Master's of Divinity from Baylor University's Truett Seminary. And Catherine has been selected as a fellow for Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty uh, and a seminary fellow for the fellowships at Auschwitz for the professional study of ethics. Uh, I got to know Catherine uh, when she was serving as director of public policy for the Texas Baptist uh, Christian Life Commission. Uh, And before serving the Texas Baptist, she was press secretary to two Texas elected officials and a policy attorney for two nonprofits focused on issues affecting low-income families. Catherine is one half of the podcast, Melanated Faith, which is a conversation about race, faith, and culture from the perspective of two black Christian women. She has written for Christianity Today, Christ and Pop Culture, where I read her work, The Baptist Standard, The Houston Chronicle, Think Christian, and Austin Woman Magazine. Catherine is a member of the Pelican Project, which we're a big fan of at the Ad Campaign. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys. And I, too, am a fan of Damian Lillard. I mean, I feel bad because I like LeBron James, but I don't like the Lakers. So, you know. I hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. So I'm, uh, I'm a fan of Dame Time. 
Yeah, I, it's, hey, there it's, we go. Uh, We're starting this off right. Yeah, it's been great having. Uh, I mean, obviously the circumstances are are uh, unusual, and and there's all all kinds of. Uh, but but it's been quite something to have basketball on like all day to have it all in one place. Can can imagine all have all those players in Orlando. I, I've enjoyed watching more basketball than than uh, than I have in a while. Justin, what, why don't you uh, tell our listeners a, a bit about uh, what we're going to discuss this week? Yeah, for sure. First, I want to just uh, thank again Catherine for coming on. Uh, when we, t- you know, we're about to talk about the, and, and everybody knows this unless you've been uh, under a rock somewhere, but people know that Joe Biden has selected Kamala Harris uh, as his vice presidential candidate. Uh, and so there has been a lot of conversation and debate has ensued about uh, Harris. And some of that debate has been unfair. Uh, some of that deba- debate has been fair. But today, uh, Catherine, Michael and myself are going to have a conversation about it. And I want to be very clear. We wanted to make sure because, you know, this is two guys on a on a podcast. We wanted to make sure that there was a woman's perspective on this. And we thought Catherine would be great about it. And then I think she tweeted out something about how it's unfortunate that, you know, some podcasts aren't including the voices of women on there. So we want to make sure that sure that we did. And so we're so happy that she's joining us. And I'll be honest, once I heard that biography, that bio, I, I don't know if I'm uh, qualified for this conversation, but I'm going to try it anyway. Uh, so what we're going to do today is it's going to be a tough conversation, I think, just because the subject is guaranteed to upset some people on one side or the other. Uh, but if we were afraid to be honest about this subject, then we would not be doing the job. And I don't know who 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 would be doing this kind of job if, if you're not willing to, willing to have those conversations. So let's get into it. Um, I'm going to really just start the conversation by listing a few things that I think were fair, were unfair when critiquing Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris. I promise I'm going to pronounce it wrong probably here and there. It is not a microaggression. That's just a shortcoming on my end. Uh, but we want to get into that conversation. We want to kind of create a framework to say, OK, this is what's fair. This is what was unfair. We'll start with the unfair stuff that comes at Kamala Harris because she is a black woman. Uh, and so one of the things that I thought was unfair, guys, is the birtherism. I think the birtherism, whether she can be president and then qu- questions about her actual blackness. I think those are ridiculous. And so I personally want to throw those out off top. I want to say that's not a fair criticism. It's a distraction. Let's get into the real conversation. Uh, Anybody who's throwing birtherism stuff around, I just don't think it's working in good faith. And um, it may, I guess, sound good to parts of uh, the base on the right. But those aren't conversations that I think we should be having. Something else about as far as resume goes. Now, you're always you know, you can always uh, bring questions to that. But I think it's very hard to claim that she's not qualified on paper. Right. She was the attorney general of the largest state by population. She was a district attorney, I believe. She was a senator. I'd venture to say that she's more qualified on paper than both Obama or Trump uh, when they entered office again. And that is on paper. So I think you got to be careful to say on paper that she's not qualified, although there are other qualifications that come into the conversation. And then you hear the conversation about her being ambitious, right? The truth of the matter is that every presidential candidate is ambitious. No one would make it all the way to running for president if they weren't ambitious. Now, there may be questions that follow that, but just the ambition by itself, like it's so much worse coming from 
a woman is problematic to me. But I want to uh, let hear what Catherine and Michael have to say. Catherine, what are you thinking about some of this unfair criticism? What have you heard and what do you see to be off limits in, in this uh, critique? Yeah, um, I'm just going to say, I don't know if you guys have seen that meme about Biden and the hoe, like this idea that just because oh. she's a woman, like those kinds of like, because I have seen from some Christians, one wife of a fairly prominent ex seminary professor, um, this idea that she, um, because that feels like it's just because she's a woman. Like, why um, comment about um, her being a hoe? Um, I just feel like it's just really diminishing of her accomplishment and her marriage. I mean, what that's not based on anything other than the fact that she's a woman and it maybe sounds good with Biden and the I don't know. Um, but yeah, those kinds of like name calling, I think, are really unfair and inappropriate. And if we're just talking about, um, what Christians should participate in and what they should not participate in. I think calling a woman a hoe is something we should definitely not participate in. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. I I had not, I had not, uh, not, not seen that, but uh, yeah, Yeah, I mean, hopefully we could all agree on that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it came from Rush Limbaugh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, He was making a comment about some past history and and used that term. And it was, uh, I think you hit on the head, Catherine. That's just unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, I think two things that come to mind immediately is I think calling her like angry or nasty, just because to me that invokes like the sort of angry black woman stereotype. Um, And I think when people talk about her as angry, like what they're pointing to um, usually is that moment in one of the early debates where she kind of talked about Joe Biden's record on on busing. And I don't think that that at all was angry. I think she was strident. And I think she was her convictions, I think, came across in that maybe moment. And so I think just as a black woman, like I'm always really um, it it makes me uncomfortable when I hear people say um, a black woman with convictions or speaking firmly or directly is is angry because I think it invokes a really ugly trope about about black women. And I think men often are not criticized in that way for um, being strident in their points. Um, And the other thing I will say, I think is a little bit, I think we're going to talk about fair criticisms later, but one thing I do want to point out um, is when people talk about her record as a prosecutor, it makes me a little uncomfortable when people jump to, I think, the shorthand that she's a cop. I think the reality is across politics, especially for Democratic women, the likelihood that you're elected to statewide office or office, you know, governor, whatever, and or senator and have not been um, a district attorney or state attorney general, it's very unlikely. And I mean, you can see that with Claire McCaskill, Amy Klobuchar, lots and lots of women, Democratic women, are prosecutors before they run for statewide office. And that's because of this trope, this idea that women would be soft on crime or that women are emotional. And so kind of one of the strategies to kind of deflect that criticism is to be elected to some sort of law enforcement type role or position. Um, Because I think you would, I think you would find that quite a few women without that on their resume could not then run for U.S. senator or governor or, you know, president or whatever. And so I think there are things about her record as prosecutor to to criticize. But I think the criticism that she chose to be a prosecutor, I think, doesn't reflect the reality of what it is to be a woman, especially a Democratic woman in politics and have to figure out a way to kind of combat that like mommy or like women are like soft on the issues or too emotional and couldn't handle it. Yeah, Catherine, that that last one uh, is 
something I've been thinking about quite a bit too. And I, I think your point's good just to add to, to that criticism without context of particular cases, uh, she di- uh, what she didn't prosecute, what she did, without digging into the facts of a case, uh, without digging into what information was available at the time, without knowing how using resources to prosecute one case might have detracted from another case uh, uh, that that was being pursued. Um, a, a lot of the criticism of uh, uh, lawyers generally, but uh, DAs, is, is based on this sort of taking all kinds of things that are, are really complicated and decisions that involve dozens, hundreds of factors and sort of stripping that all away. Uh, in a way that I don't think is is helpful. And the environment that that creates is, in fact, to have a politically motivated DA who's always thinking about how things are going to look should they want to run for office down the road. And that's just not a good situation to be in. So I agree with, you know, I don't mean to take her entire record as DA off the table, but just this, like, contextless, uh, approach to different different aspects of what she did or did not do as DA just just needs just needs a bit more context. Uh, then just the other thing I'd say is uh, I, I do think have to be careful about making criticisms that are based on sort of tropes or stereotypes. You know, I, I do think what's clear, and maybe we'll get into this later on, is I do think part of what's you know informed some criticisms of Eris is. You know, she's had prominent committee uh, seats, particularly on the uh, Judiciary Committee, where with a Republican administration in office, you know, she has taken a a prosecutorial role on those committees where she's pressing witnesses in pretty strong ways. Uh, There are all kinds of different sort of adjectives you could use to use to describe it. But I do think that that's been a major part of how her how her name rose to significance. These these committee hearings, whether it was Supreme Court nominees or uh, sort of Trump nominees to federal government. Um, but, but I, I do think that's a, that's a big piece of it, uh, in addition to some of the debate interactions. This is, that's, that was good. I mean, the, I didn't think about the prosecutor side of it and just to talk about that side of it more generally. And I think it really hits on what Michael was saying. I think somebody has to be a prosecutor, right? There are criminals, there are people who do things wrong. Somebody has to be the prosecutor. And you see this mostly kind of from, you know, the Democrat socialists, the folks who are a little further left, that anything having to do with anything about uh, prosecution or uh, criminal justice and, and not being on the side of, of the defense of the defendant is automatically bad. And you're automatically a bad person that we don't want to have. And it's just a very unrealistic view of society. Someone has to be a prosecutor. Prosecutors have to be somewhat zealous, as any attorney would have to be. But they do have to be fair. And so as we go into the conversation about what is fair criticism, I think you do have to look at some of that stuff again, like Michael said, within context. I never even really thought about I mean, I knew that a lot of women went into those positions because it would kind of bolster them and and show that they do have a a toughness, uh, which is probably unfair that they would have to to prove that. I, I completely agree with that. 
But I just think that criticism in general that, oh, you prosecuted somebody, you sent someone to jail, even when the whole community or most of the state at that moment, maybe they were just getting over a crime wave is what they were asking you to do. Right. We kind of erase those erase those moments. Uh, Any additional commentary on that? Yeah. No, I mean, I think the idea, too, I think. The reality is, I think the entire Democratic Party has moved left on criminal justice. So, I mean, part of it is, you know, um, some of the things that we are like clear, like that is bad and we shouldn't do things that way. That was not even the thought. I mean, you know. 10, 15 years ago. And I think oftentimes with the DA, like, again, you're reflecting, I think the trope is, you know, DAs, it's, you know, tough on crime. But I, I mean, Kamala was at the forefront of the kind of shifting away from tough on crime to smart on crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also mm-hmm. think this idea that like, this is even where prosecutors are like, um, tough the idea that it's only because their white constituents want that i mean i think the reality is sometimes prosecutors reflect what even the african-american community or the immigrant community like we're asking for these types of crimes to be prosecuted and so you know like this idea that like any to your point any type of prosecution is inherently racist you know because it's like this kind of white um, power structure pushing these things forward is not necessarily always the case and reflective of what's what is on the ground. So, um, yeah, I completely agree with. I think you have to talk about it in context. There has been a contextless, I think, conversation about her role as district attorney. <laughs> Just a quick note that came to mind was like, uh, like there's a long history of politicians being held accountable for their work as defense attorneys you know like can't believe you defended that you know billionaire that corporate guy like that so it is like uh, i'm not aware of like a long uh it's interesting to see the tables turn on the prosecutors uh uh, that 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 seems like a, a less common sort of political uh critique than than uh attacking the defense attorneys <laughs> that's very yeah. true and the truth of this matter is even as we talk about it these criticisms aren't going to stop right so we don't expect after this conversation they're going to stop but what we are asking christians to do is filter through some of that stuff right don't feed into it don't retweet it that's what we're really trying to get at right don't kind of perpetuate the problem so, OK, well, we, we had some really good unfair criticisms. I think everybody, especially folks on the uh, on the right, just think about those unfair criticisms. And even folks on the left who don't like Kamala, think about those criticisms. And are you being fair and are you enter- entering into this in good faith? And I think that last uh, uh, conversation was good. We're going to take a break and then we'll get right back with the fair criticisms. What is a good faith argument uh, against uh, Kamala as uh, the VP? We are back with the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, we are talking about uh, the new vice president uh, pick for the Democrats, who is Kamala Harris, and the debate that is ensuing. We think that there are some very unfair criticisms and that there are some fair criticisms. So now we're going to talk about what we think as our fair criticisms. And the reason I brought this up, something that made it come to mind for me and the reason I wanted to talk about this subject is my, me and my wife have a friend, family friend who was saying that she got in so many arguments the day that uh, Biden announced uh, his pick. 
because people were, were criticizing uh, the pick and she didn't understand why people were criticizing it. Her, her point of view was this. This is such a historic moment. You know, we might have the first black female vice president. And I think everybody agrees with that. And then she was like, basically, so why are people criticizing her past? Why are they talk, criticizing her, her past policies? Let's just be happy that she's a first. Right. Uh, even as someone uh, myself who greatly values representation and understanding the need for representation when it comes to people of color and black women, especially, I still think personally that that's a really bad approach to voting. Right. To say, hey, this is uh, historic. And so let's just uh, focus on the moment and not focus on the things that actually are uh, also important about a president, which is what policies they'll push forward. The president is about leadership and it's about policy. And so people have a right to question some of those things. So I think it's really bad, but not uncommon to just focus on the historic moment because you hear so much about it and there is an importance to it. Right. It's not without uh, substance. But that shouldn't be the only thing that we're looking at. And we certainly shouldn't get mad at other people when they want to uh, critique other aspects of the person who's going to have a very important uh, role in, uh, in in America, leadership role in America. So here are some fair criticisms, in my opinion. Um, and I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about some fair criticism. So we heard about the ambition. And, and I think just saying she's ambitious is not fair criticism because every person that's running for president is ambitious. Maybe you, you ask, OK, what is her core? Right. Uh, I think it's fair to question some of the pretty dramatic flip flops on policy that we saw during the uh, pop during the primary. I mean, she took on a lot of almost um, Democrat socialist positions when she was running, where she was a lot more establishment, it seems, uh, beforehand. Something else that I think is fair to question to some extent was how she accused Biden of being a segregate, uh, supporting segregationist, not being a segregationist, but supporting segregationist. And that she believed his accusers when it came to uh, the, the the issues that he, he had with women. Um, now, we all know that everybody who is running for president is going to have a critique of other people. But it does seem like those criticisms are harder to take back. And so I do think that's something that she's going to have to explain and explain in a real way, because especially when you get to the Me Too conversation, it's such an important conversation to be having that it, you almost trivialize it. If when you get picked, it's not a big deal. Right. Because we didn't see those issues. Those issues aren't, aren't things that she's still going to be talking about um, now that she's the vice president, uh, uh, vice president, vice presidential candidate. The other thing I, I would say, especially for, for f- folks who are pro-life, is. Her stances on abortion. I mean, she's taken some pretty extreme stances when it comes to abortion. I think those are questions that she's going to have to answer, um, even with some of her you know, prosecutions while she was uh, still in California, dealt with people who were pro-life and the way that she, you know, she handled those things. I think that's a fair criticism. I also would bring up religious liberty, religious freedom. Uh, I think there's a good faith argument that during uh the Judiciary Committee committee hearings that Kamala um, made some statements that could almost amount to an an unconstitutional religious test for conservative Catholics who are pro-life and do not affirm gay marriage. And that's no small thing. Uh, The Senate later actually later uh, voted to repudiate uh, the attempt to apply a religious test to 
uh, judicial nominees. So those are just some criticisms that I think think are fair. Uh, Should they be controlling? Should that mean that you don't vote for that ticket? That's not what I'm saying. But I think those are questions she's going to have to ask. And I think for us to focus on the historic moment and not address those issues wherever, wherever you come down on it would be problematic. Catherine, what do you think about some fair criticisms and how you kind of evaluated this? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, I'm thrilled because it is historic and the idea of a black woman first vice presidential nominee from an HBCU um, as a child of a divine nine marriage, like that representation is very important. But I will say, um, yeah, representation in and of itself isn't enough because I think we can think of plenty of examples of people of color or whatever your your thing is um, as representation where the actual policies were harmful to the community in which they are supposedly like representing. Um, And so I would just say that as much as I celebrate the representation, um, I agree that that's not enough. Um, I would say some fair criticisms. You know, I will say as someone who used to work on the school to prison pipeline, her stance and prosecuting parents um, when their kids are truant. I think at the time that she was doing that, we knew that that was a bad strategy and that um, that it sets kids on the path to the school to prison pipeline. I think for parents, oftentimes the parents that were prosecuted were lower income or working class. And so there's just a level of like taking them away from work to come to court. Like it's not an effective strategy to get their kids to re-engage in school. Um, and so I think that is a fair criticism. I would agree with the religious liberty and the unconstitutional religious test. I think that's a fair criticism of her record. Um, I do think the thing with Biden and busing, I, yeah, I go back and forth on that. Cause I do think that she was sincere in questioning his opposition to busing based on the things that he said. Um, But I do think it's absolutely fair to ask her, how did you get over these concerns? Um, How did you get over, you know, you said you believed his accusers, but now you're joining his a ticket. How did you, so I think the way to frame that is, um, you know, what made you change your mind enough that you felt comfortable joining this ticket? And so um, rather than um, kind of, putting it into, oh, she's like a flip-flopper, you know? Because I think even just some of the criticisms that we, um, that people had of like Mitt Romney, I think it's actually a good thing to change your mind. I mean, if that is what happened. Um, and I think we so often in mm-hmm. conversations about politics, like yeah, yeah, we yeah. go to the flip-flopper thing and we encourage people to be strident and wrong for <laughs> <laughs> for eternity if we don't make space for people to like get new facts and come to a different conclusion. Um, and so I think it's totally fair to ask her, like, what made you change your mind? Um, and so I agree, too, with the pro-life thing. I mean, sh- the whole party has moved to the left on what is, like, the conversation around that. And so I think, and to me, that is really fair because that is something, as vice president, she would directly be kind of involved with, impactful for. We can imagine a situation where repealing the Hyde Amendment comes up and she has to cast the deciding vote. And so... Um, Yeah. So I think that is an absolutely fair criticism because I think that specifically relates to now the role in which she would play as vice president. So, um, yeah, I agree. I think those are all I think questions about policy are always fair criticisms or questions to ask candidates. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's good, Catherine. Uh, You know, the, the one thing I'll say about the and we talked about this on an earlier episode of the podcast 
but the the thing that got me about the the infamous sort of debate critique around busing was not so much the critique itself, but the fact that the campaign had merchandise that they <laughs> were ready to sell within hours of the debate, <laughs> you know, just sort of like the, the, the idea that they were trying to create a moment around it. Uh, right. th- that's what, that's what kind of got me. Uh, I, I do want to, so, so the religious freedom concerns around around Senator Harris. Justin was referring to this. Uh, well, well, actually, you both referred to it. Uh, just a, there was a Trump nominee who had an affiliation with uh, was a member of Knights of Columbus, which um, is is a, a pretty well known uh, Catholic organization. It's not Opus Dei. It's it's not it's not uh, you, you know it, like they have. Uh, you know they have they have buildings and meeting places around the whole country and and uh, especially where I'm from, kind of the Rust Belt. I mean, Knights of Columbus is a is a thing that um, you know was was pretty common. And her and Senator Hirano from Hawaii kind of led the charge in again not not asking what this nominee's views on. Uh, social conservative issues were, though they did that too, but they also specifically went after his affiliation with Knights of Columbus. The issue here is not that you aren't allowed to ask nominees about issues that might be influenced by their faith. The issue is applying really a religious test, which is prohibited by the Constitution. I'm not sure her Harris's uh, approach violated the letter of the constitution but it definitely as justin said kind of came up to this uh, close to the spirit the other religious freedom concern is uh, harris is the chief sponsor of a bill called the do no harm act which would basically not using a scalpel but really like an, an axe a chainsaw it, it would make the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was just recently called a super statute by Justice Gorsuch in his opinion that granted LGBT workplace protections. Gorsuch called it a super statute. Uh, Harris's bill would basically, and we aren't going to be able to go into the depths of the bill, but but the paraphrased version is that, that the bill would neuter the Religious Freedom Restoration Act any time in which it came up against uh, really any other right. So so basically it would say Religious Freedom Restoration Act takes a back seat, can't be used as part of a part of a balancing test uh, when it comes to not just LGBT issues, but some uh, scholars and policy folks thinks, think that it would apply to hospital workers that, that don't want to take part in abortion procedures, et cetera. The, the, the fact that she's, she, you know, she's not just a signer on of that bill, but the fact that she was, that, that it's her bill is, is concerning to, to folks, uh, especially when, you know, she, she represents a state that includes Christian colleges that would be greatly affected, robust Catholic church presence that would be affected. The Catholic church that I, I should add is incredibly diverse and Christian colleges that are incredibly diverse racially and socioeconomically. And so the, the other criticism that hasn't been discussed, uh, Harris has a bill called the LIFT Act, which uh, has some really good provisions. It's an anti-poverty uh, bill. Jordan Weissman at Slate pretty early on in the campaign raised concerns that there is a pretty significant marriage tax in that bill that wasn't in 
other Democratic bills that tried to address the same set of issues. To my knowledge, Harris never addressed that. And uh, obviously, we want to see strong anti-poverty policy. I'm of the mind that anti-poverty policy that uh, introduces disincentives on marriage can often sort of boost and exacerbate the same problems that the bill is trying to address. And so those those are uh, those are some some criticisms that I think are fair game and ought to be on the table. Uh, I, I will say, like a a key part of this and how it was handled in you know previous elections is you know, the Biden campaign sending a really clear message and, and Harris sending a really clear message as Tim Kaine did, as uh, as previous running mates have done, as Joe Biden did, uh, that that uh, that Harris is joining the Biden ticket and that Harris is signing on to uh, signing on to Biden's policies where there are disagreements, um, not that Biden is absorbing sort of uh, all of Harris's positions and, and pieces of legislation. Michael, that was extremely helpful and detailed. I, I appreciate that. And I hope listeners are seeing what we're trying to do. We're not tr- telling you uh, to vote for them because of this or not vote. We're trying to frame what the conversation will look like. How can we have a healthy discourse about this vice presidential pick uh, without going over on one side or the other? Like we just explained, if you're one of those people who sees the importance of representation you still have to deal with some of the things that Michael brought up and that Catherine brought up. These are things that you have to deal with. Or if you're someone who's a Republican or a conservative that that feels like this isn't the right pick and you you know you want to go in a different direction, you still should not allow people to pull you into these unfair criticisms. Because at the end of the day, they don't help the conversation. They actually hurt uh, the entire public discourse. And that's what we're trying to get at. What What is a constructive way to talk about this? And when we come back, I'll kind of introduce a, a concept that I've been working on, which is one dimensional politics. And we'll see what the other two have to say about it. We'll be right back. We are back with the uh, Church Politics Podcast. Again, we are talking about Kamala Harris and we're talking about the VP pick and and what is a, what's fair game and what's not fair game. I think part of this conversation or something that I, can, I think comes out of it is what all, what, what all should we take into consideration as we make a, uh, make a decision when we vote, but also when we debate, when we have a conversation with others who may not agree with us. And as hard as it seems, especially in this moment of polarization, whether you like Pelosi and Trump or you dislike one or the other, I think Christians have to avoid what I'll call one dimensional politics. Uh, One dimensional politics is basing our arguments and our political decisions on one attribute, uh, one issue in a vacuum or purely your disdain for the other side of the conversation, right? It's it's a dumbing down of the political process that makes every political choice that we make seem easy. It's particularly useful, I think, for those who are trying to create partisan robots or trying to create sort of a mob mentality. That That's where it's useful at, but those, of course, are bad things, right? So when we hear the, we just have to beat the Democrats or we just have to beat Trump, that might be true from your perspective, but if you're if the conversation ends there, then I think that it's one dimensional politics. 
as important, again, as representation is, I think mainly voting on the identity of the candidate, as Catherine uh, mentioned so uh, so clearly, is by definition one dimensional politics. Uh, this one's going to get me probably in a little bit of trouble, but uh, I'm not here to win a popularity contest. I think placing abortion or even race when it comes to the candidate in a vacuum and vo- voting solely on that basis, again, is one dimensional politics. It's not a healthy way to go about the conversation. That's not to say. And, and this doesn't mean that those aren't two incredibly important issues. Right. It's not to trivialize or, or minimize those issues because they actually are very important to me. Uh, It doesn't mean that they can't be at the top of your priority list. Right. I completely get that. But it does mean that your analysis, once again, should not stop there, especially if you're trying to convince somebody else on the other side of why they should hear you out. Uh, I think uh, one dimensional politics is just an incomplete foundation for making political decisions and, and having political discourse. It leaves out the consideration of too many other factors. It doesn't address other uh other opinions thoroughly. Right. It's a shallow analysis that allows far too much room for error because it doesn't address the full complexities of the election and the role the candidate is vying to fill. Right. Um, and, and right now we're not even talking just about the VP pick. We're, we can be talking about the, the presidential pick. Right. Or any other pick that you have. And we actually we actually already know that this is wrong, that this is bad because. Republicans and Democrats hate when the other side depends on one dimensional politics. Democrats hate when Republicans. uh, Well, let me say this. Christian Christian Democrats hate when Christian Republicans base their entire analysis on abortion and won't give any other issue a complete examination. Again, that's not to say it can't be your main thing. But when you won't give full examination to anything else, that's problematic. Republicans hate when Democrats focus on the identity of the candidate and ignore other considerations. We call each other stupid. We say that the other side doesn't really know their own interests. And that's where this conversation seems to come from. Now, this is, uh, uh, you know, this is these are broad strokes. We know everybody doesn't fit into this category, but I would say that it happens too often. And one of the one of the one of the issues here, and I think this is partially about it's a credibility issue. Right. If your analysis is abbreviated, uh, if your analysis is conveniently shallow, then why should the other side value what you're saying? Right. This is why one dimensional politics is so hurtful to the discourse. We should not fear moving past one dimensional politics, because if your original analysis was right, then going past that first dimension is only going to strengthen your argument. Right. So it's nothing to fear if you go past that one dimension. Uh, it strengthens. It can strengthen your argument. This deeper critique can, but what I'm I'm not saying that it's necessarily going to change your conclusion. Although it can, it's just a step that needs to be taken if you're going to have a credible uh, public witness. If you're going to have a credible opinion on issues like this, um, one thing is for sure, though. And so I, I want to prepare you for this as I kind of advocate for these multi-dimensional politics. Multi-dimensional politics is certain to run you into trouble with partisans. Uh, And it's certain to run you into trouble with the rest of your ideological tribe, because so much of the strategy is about reducing the subject matter to the lowest common denominator. If I'm a partisan leader, it's much easier for me to deal with uh, one dimensional politics than to really have to convince you by developing a nuanced and cogent argument that addresses multiple dimensions. Right. I have 
people, friends of mine, friends of mine, all kind of people ask me all the time why the and campaign criticizes progressives when Trump is so bad and conservatives on the other side that friends that I have ask me on several occasions uh, if we put Trump into our 2020 presidential uh, election statement just to keep progressives on board. So I've had people say, hey, did you guys you know, put Trump in there? He's the only politician mentioned in your 2020 presidential election statement. Did you put him in there just to keep progressives on board? Uh, some people think that the end campaign critiques both sides uh, uh, and falls into kind of a false equivalency, really in a vain attempt to pander to everyone at the same time. And I just want to be as, as, as frank as I can be. That could not be further from the truth. And we'd be complete frauds if that was our strategy. We approach politics this way because we believe that it's the only way to be intellectually honest and to raise the civic discourse. Democrats and Republicans have a lot of things that need to be corrected. The political landscape is nuanced and a faithful political witness should reflect that even when when someone uh, is really bad and even when you really dislike them, whether it's the president or somebody that's running Congress, you have to have more than a one dimensional uh, uh, frame of mind when you enter into that conversation. This doesn't mean that both sides are equal at any given time or on any given issue. But like I've said before, just because the gang green in my foot is more advanced uh, doesn't mean that the infection in my arm should be ignored. Right. Because they both can kill me. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys. What do you guys think about one dimensional politics? And do you think it's something that is acceptable at times or is it something that we just need to get rid of? Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think just my experience, I'll say a couple things. So one, I think when you vote one dimensionally all the time in every election, I think you miss crucial facts, particularly around like the abortion issue, um, which I agree is very important. But like one of the big things, like I have a friend that runs a pregnancy crisis center in the Austin area. One of the things the women come in and say all the time is it's like they lack um, community support, economics, they don't have access to healthcare, And so all of these things. So if that is your issue, um, if you, the only thing you're focused on is Roe versus Wade, you miss all these other things about why women make the choice that they make, which will still exist even if that law is overturned. Um, and I also think it sets you up for this kind of like magician's sleight of hand, right? So like if that's the issue you're focused on, you miss maybe all these other things, like maybe policy things that you don't agree with. You've given politicians to keep doing things that maybe you don't agree with or that are immoral because they're right on this one issue that is the only thing you care about. And so I think you're just kind of setting yourself up for this kind of like blindness um, when you only go whatever your issue is after that one issue. The other thing I'll say is like the reality is I think the way democracy is set up and the way, I mean, part of why we are in the moment that we are is that I think uh, we see the other side as evil and not as people who have just come to different conclusions that we've come to. Um, I worked for a state senator and her big thing is she wanted universal pre-K in the state of Texas. Well, we don't, we don't have universal pre-K. Um, but one of the things she told me about working on that issue for like 20 plus years is every year she like would do something where more kids had access to universal pre-K. So if you're a kid that's ever been adopted out of foster care, if you've been in foster care in the state of Texas, 
you have access to universal pre-K, if your parents are in the military, if your parents were state troopers, if, you know, there are all these different little categories of people, um, Title IX, if you're below a certain economic um, threshold. And so it has added up over the course of time to a significant portion of Texas school children now have access or are entitled to free pre-K. It's not all Texas school children, but I think if that, if you only focus on universal pre-K, you would say by that measure, she's a failure or like that the party failed because that is not the goal that has been achieved. And I would say that like the fact that, you know, more than half of Texas school children um, have access to pre-K um, is a great thing. And so I, I agree. I think one dimensional politics, it doesn't reflect the reality. And I think it also kind of absolves you of your own responsibility. I think one thing Stacey Abrams said the other night that I thought was really good is that politics, we're not, Politicians aren't saviors, right? Like it's not just on these people, um, whether it's your district attorney or your city council person or the president to save everything and to fix every issue. Like the whole idea of like civic engagement and democracy is that it's like each one of us playing our role and, and, um, you know, playing our note in the great symphony of democracy to get to sort of this idea of a more perfect union. And I, so I think putting, you know, to steal a little bit of Michael's terminology to put all of your hope in whatever politician or whatever policy issue it also absolves you of your own kind of personal responsibility to, as an ordinary citizen, to be the change um, you want to see. And so I would say it, you know, and I think, you know, it also ruins this idea of like having a nuanced conversation where you're actively listening to someone who holds different convictions than you do. Because I think oftentimes we get into these discussions and it's like, I'm just going to spit all my partisan talking points at you and you just spit all, and we're not actively engaging in what the other person is saying. And so, you know, I think, you know, understanding how someone could come to a specific policy position. I think understanding the nuances of the issue. I think when you are so one dimensional, you really can't engage effectively what the other side is saying. Part of how laws or legislation gets made is like you have to engage what the other side is saying. You should take that into consideration as you're developing policy proposals and issues. And I just think one dimensional politics probably more often than not, it does hurt the civic discourse. And it basically, I think it a lot of times cuts off conversation because I can't, we can't get past whatever your one issue is. That's very good. <laughs> very helpful. Michael, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was a masterclass. That was good. <laughs> that, that, that I, I especially appreciated the, the example, uh, in the Texas legislature, I, I, I think that's, I hope folks go back and listen to that a second or third time. Uh, so, so just a, a couple of things, I guess what I want to bring to this is, uh, you know, just the observation that we've talked about a bit on this podcast before, uh, that increasingly we have folks coming to politics who, who who aren't working in politics, whose job isn't to strategize on behalf of candidates or parties, um, who nevertheless view themselves as strategists and sort of view <laughs> view the way that they're approaching things as strategic when their when their their primary thing is as a citizen. So so it's like you know. I, 
I, individual citizen, couldn't critique my party because I'll really be given you know, the other party, the mm-hmm. upper hand, it's like, no, you're, you're you. <laughs> like, like, exactly. like, that, like your, your job isn't, to, isn't to be looking out for the best interests of your political party. Actually, the, the best way uh, to help your political party and politics is to be yourself and, and, to, and to, and to represent what you, what you actually think, because the likelihood is, is that if we have political parties made up of all these sort of self-appointed strategists who, who aren't saying things the way they see them or sort of hedging their bets in order to sort of you know, play their strategic role with their Twitter platforms or whatever. What what that aggregates to is a political party and political actors who think the people they're representing and even the people who are supporting them are different people than they actually are. (laughs) And and if there are people who are uh, doing that, there's probably many more people who aren't willing to play that game. And so that would be the first, that would be the first thing I'd say, which is, uh, uh, you know, yes, we, we want to, we want to acknowledge and be cognizant of the various pressures that politicians and political parties and other political actors are under. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at with the, with the DA situation. Like we want, we want to be, we don't want to be ignorant or naive of the pressures that political parties and politicians face, but neither are we responsible for them. Um, what we're responsible for is pursuing uh, the the best m- most uh, the best case with the most integrity in our politics that we can, and representing ourselves obviously informed by community, informed by if you're a Christian by Christian tradition and other brothers and sisters and. Uh, we talk a lot on this show about the, uh, a preferential option for the poor or, or uh, a special concern for uh, what, what Thurman called the disinherited. But, but yeah, th- th- that would be the main thing I'd say, which is that, that th- this, the kind of politics Justin is talking about, people often view it as, oh, I'm being sophisticated. What I want to tell you is, is, is no, actually, actually you're, you're, you're simplifying things and making it easier for those who want to manipulate you exactly. when you're approaching politics in this way. No, that that's it. I mean, it, it's so easy. It, you know, we talk about how when you're always in a state of rage, it's it may be understandable depending what's going on, but it's easily manipulated. And one dimensional politics, because it reduces everything so much, is just easily manipulated. It lacks integrity. And I, and I would tell Christians that it lacks a level of faithfulness and you can get pulled into in directions that are just not biblical when you're only focused on one thing or focused on that one thing within a vacuum. And again, like I said earlier, we see this, though. We recognize this and we hate it from the other side. We talk about it all the time, but then we turn around and we encourage it on our side because it makes the conversation easier it allows us to have a narrative that is almost perfect with no nuance. And so that that's that's just something I think Christians should talk about. I think the presidential election is a process that's really important for the candidates. Right. It's really important for them to sharpen them, to know what the people need. They need to go through that process. But I also think it's a process for us, because even if we're voting for somebody, we need to go to that, go through that process to see what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and to communicate exactly what type of mandate we're giving them. 
But if we kind of say, hey, I'm just going to be in this uh, historic moment, I'm not going to kind of take my analysis any further, then if and when that person gets in office, you're not prepared to hold them accountable or to push back on things that they might do because you weren't sharpening yourself and your analysis to get right. And so this this really has an impact on the whole process and the discourse. And I was just excited to talk uh, about it with you, too. Any other commentary just on this subject in general? Yeah, I just want to say one other thing. I think the idea like I think when you approach politics in the way that you're talking about, Justin, you're going to be frustrated and you're going to be jaded and it's going to give you. Um, because if you don't see progress on that one issue, um, you're giving yourself permission to sort of check out. And I see that so much on both sides where then it becomes, well, politics is like a futile exercise and I have no responsibility to engage. I'm just not going to vote because nothing's ever going to change. And I would argue that the problem is, I think, the one-dimensional pro- um, one-dimensional politics, but I also think it's um, your theory or approach to change is not right. And I and I don't think, you know, the example I gave, like, don't get me wrong, like, she pressed every, like, legislative session for a universal pre-K, and I think we as a staff had a strong conviction about early education. But if, if it was, well, we didn't get this, we should give up, politics is stupid, like, I'm just going to go back home to San Antonio mm. and do something else because this is, this is not working, mm. um, we wouldn't have anything. And so I think one thing I would also just like encourage is just like, I understand incrementalism and I understand that like it can be frustrating because you it can be frustrating as someone who's worked for 10 years it can be frustrating (laughs) but I I just think that one-dimensional politics sets you up for a kind of hopelessness and frustration on the flip side if you're not motivated by anger and like this is my one issue um that the flip side of that is that you get frustrated and you get hopeless about politics as a, a method of change and you just totally give up and so i think there's a danger um of that that's another danger of one-dimensional pro- politics yeah and and you know this Catherine. the system isn't set up for even a good idea to go through immediately and change everything right uh yeah. the, the founders talked about transient causes So as you enter into a conversation about politics and policy, understand that the system isn't set up to just change things all at once, because if it ends up being a bad idea that didn't really uh, run through the vetting process and didn't really go through the uh, the social discourse, then we're in a really bad position. So understand in a way that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a sense of urgency or something shouldn't happen as soon as possible. But just understand when you enter politics that the wheels of justice often turn slow. And uh, that's somewhat by design. And so it's just something good to have in the back of your mind. Anything additional, Michael? Well, you know, I I just say Catherine is right. Approaching politics uh, in the way that you've been describing, Justin, can be frustrating. I also want to acknowledge that addressing politics without uh, sort of simplifying it, uh, without sort of focusing on one issue is also going to be frustrating. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, main, the, the main message is that politics is frustrating. Um, <laughs> and, you, you know, what we're proposing here is not something that's going to alleviate all tension, <laughs> going yeah. to like, you know, uh, but like we're just talking about what, what, trying to figure out what does it look like to be faithful? <laughs> like, yeah. like wh- what does it look like to have uh, I- integrity? And it would be better to be frustrated and have integrity 
than, than to be frustrated and lose yourself in the midst of that frustration. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that would be the, uh, cause, cause I think people will often, uh, some, sometimes people will, will, uh, hear about an campaign or hear about, uh, about you, Catherine, and, and hear about the advocacy work you've been doing and say, wow, that, that looks like an interesting way. And then, sort of a year after trying it out, a year after, you know, following Ann campaign, following you, Catherine, uh, they'll go, gosh, everything hasn't been solved. I'm still getting in arguments. I haven't convinced everybody yet. Uh, I guess this isn't the way. And, you know, uh, politics is like a, a never ending frustration that is worth it because it's not about us and our self-actualization and our self-expression. We're only in politics because politics matters for our neighbors. Politics matters for the way our society functions. And so, so that will be, uh, that's just what I want to leave people with that, that there is no silver bullet here. The, the, the question is just how as Christians can we be faithful knowing that there's going to be all kinds of frustrations and tensions and disagreements, uh, no matter how you engage in politics. Amen. I mean, we know that a lot of good can be done in politics, but at the end of the day, we got to keep it in perspective and know that we're doing it to glorify God. The Ant campaign truly believes that when we defend human dignity and we promote human flourishing, we are glorifying God, whether we see the end result or not. And so I want to thank Catherine again for joining us. This was such a great conversation. I hope it helps all of you in this uh, VP conversation and others to be more faithful within the conversation. As I always say, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and Camp. Until next time, we'll see you. This is the groove. Tell me, I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a